Well, that was just glorious. And thank you, Tiffany and Christian and the entire band. Tidings of comfort and joy are ours in Christ. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. It's Christmas Eve morning, and we're all quite busy and uh, preparing for gift-giving and parties and travel, and you are here gathered at church this Lord's Day morning, and I want to thank you for your faithfulness in gathering. Some of you are nowhere near where you should be in your Christmas preparations, <laughs> and, and you maybe have even wondered and second-guessed your coming here during these precious hours. I just want to tell you, and I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, you made the right choice. And so thank you for being here and for bringing me so much joy as a pastor and as a friend. Luke chapter 2, our sermon title is, What Child Is This? We continue our study of these opening chapters of Luke, and what a glorious thing it is to be studying Luke 1 and 2 in these days leading up to Christmas. Luke 2, beginning in verse 22. And I'd like to invite you to please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. In the previous verses, we just saw the angels appearing to shepherds in the field, the shepherds telling everyone in the town Mary is treasuring these things in her heart. And then at the end of eight days, we're told in verse 21, when he was circumcised, they called him Jesus, which was the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then beginning in verse 22, this is God's holy and authoritative word. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he came in the spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light 
for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. May God bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I wonder, have you ever waited a really long time for something? This time of the year, every Christmas, we wait a few weeks to open gifts for kids. That can feel like a really long time. I, I was thinking about this idea of waiting. I waited a really long time to marry my wife, Megan. I have never waited for anything so long as I waited for her. And even though we got married right after college, we fell in love early in high school and had to wait an eternity of seven years uh, when we finally got married, we danced to Etta James' song, At Last, because the waiting had come to an end. Christians celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ with a time of waiting that is called Advent. It is a time of longing for the removal of pain and sorrow. It's a time of longing for deliverance. For us today, that longing and that waiting has as its object the second coming of Christ. He came into the world once and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And he is the object of our hope. The Old Testament saints knew what it was to wait, not just days and weeks and months and even years and decades. They knew what it was to wait centuries as they longed for the promised deliverer to appear. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. We sang it earlier, O come, O come, Emmanuel, was the cry of their hearts. Come, deliverer, come, Savior, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. That was the waiting, the longing of their hearts. Our passage today gives us a window into the faithful waiting of two saints in the temple. It says of Simeon in verse 25 that he was 
waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Anna, too, was waiting. And our passage ends with a reference to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So this passage is a beautiful picture of the fulfillment of their waiting. A beautiful picture of a faithful man and woman who after centuries of waiting had not given up hope that God would be true to his promise. We sang about them, in fact, and do sing about them in the song, Angels from the Realms of Glory. After singing about the angels and the shepherds, I think we sang this song just last week or the week before, but we sang it. I thought, that's, that's Simeon and Anna. Saints before the altar bending, watching long in hope and fear. Suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear. Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus was born, uh, the angels sang, shepherds found the child and praised God, and now uh, Luke's telling of the story uh, shifts the scene to the temple in Jerusalem, which was five miles from Bethlehem. Eight days after his birth, according to Jewish custom, as we read, they gave him the name Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. And then, just over a month after that, they took Jesus to the temple. This would happen when the child was 40 days old. There were two Jewish ceremonies that took place at this time that was the reason for Joseph and Mary's travels to the temple in Jerusalem. There was the ceremony of purification for the mother, according to Leviticus chapter 12. And there is the ceremony of presenting the firstborn to the child, uh, to the, the firstborn child to the Lord that presentation of the firstborn son as explained and commanded in Exodus chapter 13. If a lamb could not be afforded, they were to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons for the sacrifice. The background of this is the Passover and the Exodus. Ever since God spared the firstborn Israelite sons in the Exodus, he had established a ceremony for Israelites to consecrate every firstborn son to himself. And Luke in this passage emphasizes that Joseph and Mary did these things in accordance with God's law. In fact, five times Luke mentions that they acted according to the law of the Lord, which shows that they valued obedience to the law of the Lord, and it shows that they desired to be faithful and godly parents. Many of us were raised in Christian homes, and I believe that every one of us who were raised in a Christian home should thank God for the blessing of parents who value the Word of God and did their best to be faithful. Were they perfect? Certainly not. But were they faithful? Did they love the Lord? If you grew up in a loving Christian home, please don't look back on that upbringing through the lens of your parents' weaknesses or mistakes. There was too much discipline, they were a bit too strict, or whatever the case may be. But instead, remember your upbringing for the blessing that it was. I think you will find that you too want your kids to overlook some of your own weaknesses and mistakes in parenting. And if you are parents, well, embrace 
this weighty privilege and parent for the glory of God. I remember very well the, the feeling of, of becoming a parent. My firstborn son, Ryle, was born 20 years ago in just a few days, December 27th. We had a two-bedroom apartment in Harrisburg, and we prepared that room for the coming of this child. And we now have six children, and we have sought to provide for our kids and to care for them in every way. But from the beginning, we've always known that the most important things we do as parents are spiritual. And Joseph and Mary dedicated their child to the Lord. One of the reasons that we have child dedications as a church is this very reason. The Bible does not teach that babies are to be baptized, but it is appropriate for parents to dedicate their children to the Lord. Our children do not belong to us. They belong to the Lord. And faithful parents will have no greater desire for their children than to see their children walking with the Lord, to see them honoring the Lord and living for His glory as long as they live. Joseph and Mary, faithful parents, bring Jesus the firstborn, to the temple. Now that's significant because the day would come when Jesus would declare himself to be the true and better temple. Luke begins and ends his infancy narrative in the temple. When they arrive, there's a man named Simeon. He is righteous, devout, hope-filled, a spirit-filled man, and it had been revealed to him, we're told, by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until Christ appeared. He came to the temple full of the Holy Spirit, as we imagined he had done many days before. How many times over the years had he come to the temple, wandering, waiting for the one who was to come? Here he comes full of the Holy Spirit and when he sees this couple with this child, he knew this is the one. And we're told that he took him up in his arms. What a moment. Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands? Simeon takes the child up in his hands, lifts him up, this amazing moment, probably an old man based on the statement of his willingness to depart with a six-week-old baby whose parents can't even afford the regular lamb offering and he speaks the words of verses 29 through 32. Simeon's song, the, the Nunc Dimittis, Latin for now you are dismissing. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, the salvation of the Lord, and at last I am ready to die in peace. The waiting is done. The Savior is born. Now the focus of this scene, in fact, is, is not Simeon and Anna, but on the child Simeon holds. What child is this? And we learn from this passage that he is... One, the Savior of the world. Two, that he is opposed by many. And three, that he is worthy of our devotion. First, he is the Savior of the world. The salvation 
that Christ has brought into the world is revealed here as such a glorious thing. And we do learn about this Savior and this salvation in Simeon's song. That phrase, verse 25, which is to me one of the most beautiful phrases in all of Scripture, the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the comfort, the consolation of Israel. That, that expression reveals the comfort and the contentment and the peace that this child brings to the world. Only in Christ can we have lasting consolation. And friends, isn't this what we have come to know in our souls? The consolation that comes from this salvation. The consolation that comes from this gospel. Jesus is not now a small baby, but a high priest who reigns on heaven's throne. And he is a savior who comforts us in every sadness. He is a savior who draws near to us in our moments of loneliness. He is a savior who gives us peace, his peace, in the midst of all of life's turmoil. This savior and the salvation that he brings is the consolation of our weary souls. And not just our comfort, but the comfort of all who believe in him throughout all the world. Tidings of comfort and joy. As Simeon holds the child, he emphasizes that the salvation he brings will be universal in its reach. Did you notice that? It will be for all peoples, including, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, Simeon in his song draws a lot from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55 in particular. Here he is alluding to Isaiah 49, verse 6, and speaking of this light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is, in fact, the first time in Luke where salvation is connected to the Gentiles. It's going to become a major theme in Luke and then throughout the book of Acts. This is a savior not just for Israel, but for the nations. Because every nation is in darkness and sin, and every nation has a need for the light of salvation and the revelation of the truth, the revelation of what God has done. And it is part of the glory of the gospel that God has promised, even from his birth, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of every people and tribe and nation. Christianity has accurately been described as the most diverse sociological phenomenon the world has ever known. That's Christianity. Central and South America, Africa, Europe, North America, Asia. Our Savior is a worldwide Savior. And we rejoice today that the promise is coming true. We rejoice in the universal scope of the Christian church as we celebrate Christ, as we celebrate Christmas with Christians throughout the world, glorifying this one who is a worldwide Savior. There's something else still under this, this first point that we learn from Simeon's, from Simeon's words about this, this Savior, and it's this, that that coming to know this salvation changes the way that we view death. How does it do that? We no longer fear the grave. 
Simeon says that he can now die in peace. How? Knowing that salvation has come. Phil Riken says at this point, anyone who has seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. And anyone who has not seen him, whether young or old, is not ready to die at all. Friend, are you prepared to die? Have you seen Jesus and trusted Jesus with the eyes of faith? It totally changes the way we view not only life, but death itself. And I pray that we as a church learn this from Simeon. Learn this view of life and death and salvation and hope. Simeon's heart is not set on the pleasures and riches of this world, but upon the Savior, who alone is his comfort in life and death. The Christian should love, should have such adoration for Christ that there is a sense in which there is a degree of detachment from all of the joys and good gifts of this life. Grateful for earthly blessings, yes, but never living for earthly blessings, never placing our hope in them. For, for us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And though we do not always treasure Christ as we ought, we do know that nothing in the world compares to the joys of knowing Him. His salvation removes the sting of death. Because He rose, we too will rise. And we have eternal life with Him. He says, salvation has come. My waiting is done. I'm ready to go. It's no wonder that after Simeon speaks about this Savior of the world, Joseph and Mary marvel. It says, they marvel. They are in awe. They are astonished about what was said about their child. And that's when Simeon blesses them. And then he turns and addresses Mary which leads to our second point. What child is this? Point two, he is opposed by many. He is opposed by many. Simeon is now speaking to Mary about the division, the opposition, the sorrow that this child will bring into the world. He says this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Some will fall, some will rise. There will be this division with some rising to resurrection and vindication and glory and others falling in judgment and ruin and destruction. Life and death are at stake in how you respond to this child. Ruin and resurrection are at stake in how you respond to this child. And Simeon says that he is for a sign that is opposed. This child will be opposed. This child will be rejected and despised and hated. And this is how people, both during Jesus' life and to this day, will respond to Jesus. 
When Simeon says at the end of verse 35 that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, he's speaking there of hostile thoughts. He's speaking of sinful thoughts, thoughts opposing Christ and his gospel. And then in a sense, most devastating of all, Simeon tells young Mary, this teenage girl, that a sword will pierce her soul. Mary, your heart will be absolutely broken. This child will bring you more emotional pain than you can now imagine. Your your soul will be impaled. You will shed more tears than you thought possible. Some of those swords came throughout his life and ministry as he was opposed and slandered and mistreated. And Mary thought, how could it be that this child would be treated this way? But the ultimate sword will come in the death of her own son. Not just any death, but death by crucifixion. Death by crucifixion among criminals. And the reason is because our salvation could come no other way than through this death. This would be the sword that would grieve Mary's heart for a moment. John MacArthur says this. Here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. These soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. This difficult news of opposition and suffering is not intended to put a damper on our Christmas. In fact, it is the kindness and care of God for Mary and for the church today that he prepares us for opposition. That's the whole reason behind Simeon's prophecy and word. There are hearts being prepared. Christ will be despised. He will be rejected. He will be insulted and slandered and reviled. And so when Christ is rejected today and when people scoff at Christianity and Christians today, we should not be surprised and our faith should not be shaken. We have Simeon's warning preparing us for this and therefore we know what to expect. John Calvin says that Mary witnessed so many insults and blasphemies heaped upon Jesus that her faith would have surely faltered a thousand times had she not been sustained by Simeon's warning. This is what God's doing, sustaining faith through Simeon's warning. This, This is what explains why even family and friends will be hostile to us for following Christ. Through that opposition to 
Jesus, through that disdain for the message of the gospel, God is revealing the sinfulness of human hearts. And so, don't be disheartened. Don't have it negatively affect your faith when others judge you and oppose you and mistreat you. Jesus said that if they hated him, they will hate us as well. He is opposed by many. And one more point. What child is this? He is worthy of our devotion. Now we need to meet Anna. And together we ought to learn, and there is so much to learn from Anna in verses 36 through 38. Luke's ongoing focus on women throughout this gospel, by the way, is extraordinary. Anna was a prophetess, we are told, of the tribe of Asher. And as an old covenant prophetess, like Miriam and Deborah before her, she proclaimed God's will for the people. It's not the way that that, uh, prophecy functions in the new covenant. Uh, She is among the old covenant prophets, and she is a prophetess. This means that she was perhaps teaching the Old Testament scriptures to groups of women or privately sharing individual words of encouragement and instruction to those in the temple. We learn from her. There's a number of lessons to learn from her, but one of them is that devotion to the Lord finds expression in every season of life. She was widowed at a young age After seven years of marriage, so probably from her early 20s on, and she never remarried. She lost her husband. We imagine she grieved that loss greatly. And she chose to serve God then with undistracted devotion as a single woman. And therefore, Anna is yet another example of the great value God places upon singles. And she's an example of the great value that God places upon the elderly as well. It's not entirely clear whether she was uh, 84 years old or was a widow for 84 years. I actually think in the original that's more likely that she was a widow for 84 years, which would put her around 105 years old. So she's either old or she is super old. And she is, a, she is a beautiful model of wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And her example is given for our admiration and for our emulation. Phil Riken says this, Anna's life shows what it means to serve God through all the seasons of life. There was a time when Anna was a young virgin. In those days, she served God by getting to know him and by preserving her purity. When she got married, she served God primarily by loving and helping her husband. But after only seven years of marriage, God called her to be a widow. He released her from the duty of caring for a family so that she could live in single-hearted devotion to him. And then Riken asks this, what is your situation? Whatever God calls you to do at whatever stage of life, Serve him in the appropriate way, living for his glory. See, and the reason that I wanted to call attention to this is that 
Some of you are struggling in the season of life that you are in. Some of you are in a situation that you may not want to be in, but I can tell you this, that you are in the situation that God wants you to be in and that he has placed you there in his sovereign goodness. He loves you and he is with you and every season of life provides unique opportunities to serve the Lord and he will empower you to live for him in the season of life that he has placed you in. Notice in verse 37, another thing we learn from her example is that Anna's devotion finds expression in the disciplines of worship. It says she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, it, uh, the commentators explain it's not that she actually lived there. There wouldn't have been anywhere there in the temple to live. If I were to say, Jay Corrigan and Phil Vanderweide do not depart from the church building, I would just mean that they are often and consistently here, which would be a very true statement. That Anna went to the, the temple shows the value that she placed upon fellowship, the value she placed upon gathering, the value she placed upon the ministry of showing up. And if I had to put my finger on one blind spot of sin among American Christians in our own day, it would probably be the lackadaisical way we relate to church attendance. And so, Let's have 2024 continue to be a year that we prioritize gathering and that we devote ourselves to the ministry of showing up, both Sunday mornings and in community group. And yes, I, like a heartless man, am making this point on the morning of Christmas Eve because it is in the text itself. We devote ourselves to to gathering just as Anna devoted herself to the temple. And it also says, notice, she was devoted to fasting and prayer, which are such precious means of grace in the Christian life. Her, her daily routine every day, her daily routine reveals her love for the Lord. She is a praying woman. In prayer, we commune with the living God. She is a fasting woman. And in fasting, we express our dependence upon the Lord. We express our desire, our longing for more of Him, more of His power, more of His presence. Jim announced this earlier this year, January 7th, January 8th, kicks off our week of prayer and fasting. I want to encourage you as a church family to be preparing your hearts now for that prayer and fasting and to be considering how you as a church member, can participate in that week of prayer and fasting. She's showing up in the temple. She's praying. She's fasting as a normal part of what it means to be devoted to the Lord. And notice this. She's a grateful woman. She gives thanks to God, the text says. And in doing so, in giving thanks, she resisted the sins of grumbling and cynicism that are sometimes common among those who are advanced in years. Brothers and sisters, may it be that the older we get, the more thankful we become. That's what I want to be said of my life. 
That with each passing year, that with each passing decade, we become more and more thankful. Anna is so thankful that it overflows in speaking to everyone else about this great Redeemer. She is evangelizing, she is spreading a message of hope and salvation. I, in my study, spent some time with Anna this week in these verses, considering her example, and left with the conclusion that someday I hope to be as godly as she was. And that I hope that should God allow me to live to her age, that my life shows this same kind of devotion to the Lord. And that should it be that like Anna, I find myself without a spouse or whatever my season of life may be, that I would be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. There's something that's so beautiful about a saint of the Lord finishing well, isn't there? When into old age, we prove the faithfulness of God in how we live. Cicero wrote a famous piece of wisdom literature called How to Grow Old. And one of his observations is that we all want to live into old age and then we tend to complain when it comes. I think that's true, and it does not help at all that our culture idolizes youth, and so everyone is, is trying to hold, everyone's trying and failing miserably to hold on to something from the past rather than to embrace every season that God gives as a gift from Him. Yes, certainly aging brings unique challenges, and it may be friend, that you find yourself troubled by the passing of yet another year. But I want to remind us that in Christ we need not fear, for by the grace of God you can age like Anna. Follow her example of devotion. In our 70s, 80s, 90s, should we live that long? Those can be years of flourishing. Those can be years of purpose and meaningful devotion to the Lord. May it be that we at, at Covenant Fellowship, as we age, may we, this is, this is my vision, to be a church where the old people are godly people, where those who are advanced in years are setting an example for others, for us all, of wholehearted devotion to Christ, of finishing well for the glory of God. Jesus Christ is worthy of our devotion all of our days, every season of life, and a devotion that is expressed in gathering and in praying and in fasting and in giving thanks and in telling others, a world lost in sin and darkness, telling others about the grace and the glory of this child who is born. I want to invite the band to return. You can stand as we will sing. What child is this? Friend, I wonder what you make of Christ. What child is this? Well, Scripture makes known who He is. He is the fulfillment of the law that Joseph and Mary were keeping. He is the sacrifice that their sacrifice pointed to. He is not only the firstborn son of Joseph and Mary, but would become the firstborn of the dead and the firstborn of all creation. He is the ultimate temple of God. 
He is the consolation of Israel. What child is this? He is the bringer of salvation. He is the light of the nations. He is the vanquisher of death, removing the fear of death from our hearts today. He is the recipient of opposition, yes, but through suffering, he would triumph and be exalted to the highest place. What child is this? He is the object of our devotion. He is worthy of our thanksgiving and praise. And so as we continue to wait, and we do wait, as we wait for this groaning world to be made right, waiting for the consummation of our redemption, as we wait, we are ruled not by our feelings. We are ruled not by our circumstances. We are ruled by the sure promises of God who never fails to keep his word. Every promise will be kept. Every consolation of the gospel will be experienced. Every tear will be wiped away. And every nation will praise the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, who was born for you and me. This is our hope. We have a glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's sing his praises today.